was about a couple of months before my fifth birthday when my parents told me that that fall I would be going to school. Now, I got a set of context for my understanding about school. I grew up right on the edge of the University of Kansas campus. In fact, right across from our alley, right the alley behind our home, the property of the university was right behind there. So every day I saw students, and here's what they looked like. They were six foot tall. They carried backpacks full of books. They drove cars. So when I heard I was going to school, I had very clear expectations. On my fifth birthday, I was going to shoot up to six feet tall. I would carry a backpack stuffed with books to classes in buildings scattered all across my grade school campus. And so, needless to say, my first day in kindergarten was a bit of a disappointment. Now, we all have expectations. We all have plans for the future. Sometimes we become overconfident. And we think that things will work out exactly as we have planned. Now, in the last 25 years, in an unprecedented way, Americans have begun to invest in the stock market. Um, if you've done any investing at all, you know that especially when you buy a mutual fund, you'll get what's called a prospectus. It's a document that describes the uh, philosophy of the fund, its current holdings, its expectations for the future, and it's written by marketers who have great ways of talking in rosy ways about the expected returns, and it can be very persuasive. However, if you read all the way to the end of the prospectus, you start to find toward the end, generally in small print, something that says something like this. Investing in this fund is not a guarantee of a specific return. In the future, your shares could be worth more or less than what you paid for them. The returns indicated are based on past results and not an indication of future performance. So you don't have to live very long to know that there is no such thing as a sure thing. And we all know people who proceed with life as though they're in control of the future and then find out to their, their uh, disappointment that it doesn't. For the last couple of months, we've been in a series based on the book of James. James was uh, uh, the brother of Jesus, one of the leaders of the early Christian church, and he wrote a book that we have in the New Testament, a letter um, that had been written to the Christians who were, uh, needed some wisdom about everyday life. His goal was to point people, by the way he wrote, toward what we've called a good life versus the good life, not just a materialistic understanding of life, but a way of life that conforms to how God has designed us and designed the world. And the topic that James points us to today is a proper way to view the future. So I'd like to read to you from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. And if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible that's in front of you, you can grab that, and it's on page 1843, page 1843. Otherwise, the words will also be on the screen. Let me read from James 4 beginning with verse 13. He says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? Your mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil." So James starts with a problem, and the problem is an attitude toward the future that was common then, and it's common now. And so he says, listen up, those of you who have these uh, kinds of plans. And then he summarizes a typical first century business plan. And it says, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. And what he's pointing out is that they had a specific time frame, a specific plan, a specific place. Um, they even assume that the business venture is going to be profitable. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we often see this even today. Those of you who are old enough to remember the 1990s remember the dot-com retailer um, hype. 
Someone who worked for me at General Mills quit. I can't remember the year. Um, she went to work for a company in California, in San Francisco, called Pets.com, nine months before it imploded. Or what about the 2000s? Remember the mortgage-backed securities? In a time of low interest rates, um, these were attractive for investors, so attractive that the financial services created more and more of them. And as we now know, they began to attract riskier and riskier loans, which the rating agencies all gave high marks. And a great deal it was until the whole thing came crashing down. Or two years ago, oil was $100 a barrel. And for four years, it had bounced between $80 and $100 a barrel until August of 2014 when the price began to drop and drop and drop. In January of this year, it was $30 a barrel. Right now, I think it's around $45. But no one expects it to jump back up to $90 or $100 a barrel. Now, I don't mean that James is simply limiting his criticism here to those who make business plans. His criticism here is of overconfidence about the future, and it applies to any area of life, any place, thing that we think about um, and plan for the future. So we could say, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and expect that ABC will happen. And about this, James says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. So he's criticizing people who, haven't, who believe they can control the future, and this kind of overconfidence, he says, is an arrogance that presupposes that we, not God, are in charge of the future. It ignores human limitations and assumes that we have the ability to control an uncertain and undefined future. What's more, he says at the end of verse 14 is, he says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. In short, we sometimes forget it's a failure to recognize the brevity of life. He compares it to a mist which when the sun comes up and burns off, it's gone. And so he says, the only thing certain about life is death. Now, he's not being morbid. He's not trying to frighten anyone. He's simply being realistic. So James is critical of people who arrange their lives as though God did not exist, as though they were the masters of their destiny. So he says, it's arrogant to assume that we can make any plans independent of God. It's arrogant to think that we can control the future. Now, I don't think James is being critical of planning. We'll get to that a little bit later. And I also don't think he's being critical of business ventures, even those that assume that we'll make a profit, or at least the hope of a profit. But he is critical of those who make a plan without acknowledging that ultimately God is in control of our lives and of the future. So if overconfidence is wrong, what does James suggest in its place? And I would say that he suggests a shift from overconfidence in ourselves to a confidence that is based in God. And this is what he says in verse 15. He says, instead, and by the way, he's just saying, instead of making these certain plans that assume we control the future, he says, instead we ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So he's saying plan, go ahead and plan. Just make sure you begin every plan and you do it in the context of God, of acknowledging God's control over the future and of life. So we express our plans with a big if. And the if is, if it is the Lord's will. And James is simply reminding them not to forget God. So when we plan, we need to do so acknowledging that God has full control over life. It's not, by the way, as if the phrase, if it is the Lord's will, is some kind of magical thing we say, like some kind of spiritual abracadabra. What he's saying is that it reflects an attitude that God is in control of life. It's not just saying, I hope so, but it is submitting our plans to God and saying, your will be done. Now, in a moment, I want to talk about some practical lessons that I think James has for us today, but I first want to address two possible misunderstandings, and I've hinted at both of these. And the first is that planning for the future is wrong. 
Actually, the Bible says the opposite. There are numerous times in the Bible when we find encouragement to make plans, to think things through, uh, to be prepared. For example, in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, you frequently find encouragement to, to make plans, to be, make wise plans. For example, in Proverbs 14.8, it says, the wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. Or another example is if you read the New Testament book of Acts, a book that involves a, a wide variety of strategic plans as the early church begins to grow. You find all sorts of plans and decision-making based on that, but it's always done in the context of acknowledging that God is in control. So planning per se is not wrong, but planning without acknowledging God's control over the future is wrong. A second misunderstanding that some have is that business is bad, and James is not being critical of business. The Bible never tells us to withdraw from the world. He just happens to pick business as an example of the overconfident kinds of plans that we sometimes make about the future. But we can be overconfident about a lot of different things, about health or family life or any other area of life. The point here is our attitude toward the future, not our involvement in business. Which brings us to what I think are four practical lessons that God has for us um, through what James has, to, has written. And the first is, and we've already talked about it, so I won't spend much time on it, and that is that planning is wise. We are to be intentional about our lives. Now, there's an expression that we have, aim at nothing and you'll hit nothing. It's not in the Bible, but it's true. And when we plan, we need to do so, though, James says, in an attitude of trust toward God. The second thing is to acknowledge God's control of the future. I once read an article that encouraged us to plan, but to make fuzzy plans. Fuzzy plans are plans that acknowledge that things change, flexible plans, plans that recognize that God may work or lead us or guide us in ways that we may not have anticipated. So we make plans, but we allow ourselves to be guided by God through that. So he may ask us to adapt and to change. Now, by nature, I am a planner, and so often I've told other people this is what I plan to do and this is how I think it will work out. And one time a friend of mine said, you know, he said, if God wanted to interrupt and suggest a change in plans, would you be open? Well, I had to admit that I had things pretty firmly fixed. And it was a humbling moment to realize that we always need to make plans in the context of the possibility of change. But I think there's another reason why acknowledging God's control of the future is important. And that is because sometimes the things that God asks of us are really hard. We make plans, we acknowledge God's control. I think we are much better um, uh, prepared to persevere when difficulties come because we know that God has purposes even in the difficulties that we may not have imagined. We may be in a difficult marriage or in a difficult time at work or struggling in parenting, whatever it is in life, and sometimes we think, you know, I planned, I prayed, I've even asked God, and this should work out really well. Well, sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes God just asks us in the moment to trust him. Now, before we get to lesson three, I want to point out two opposite but equally inappropriate perspectives, and one James addresses explicitly, and that is this idea of overconfidence about the future. But the second is a perspective that is really almost the opposite, although it comes from the same source, and that is worry and fear about the future. And it's something that we often fall prey to, especially Minnesotans. Now, let me explain. Um, I am not a native, although I've lived more than half my life here. So as an observer, I think I understand how Minnesotans think. Um, I was raised in Kansas. And when I first moved to Minnesota, 
I found out I had some adjusting to do. Now, some of that I expected. I expected I needed to buy a really warm coat and all that because winter is really challenging. But what I didn't expect is that I would have difficulty understanding Minnesotans because we all speak English. And I'm not talking here about accent. I'm talking about the way Minnesotans talk. So for example, about a year after I moved here, I, I, I met through a Bible study, a guy that I ended up being roommates with. And one Saturday morning, I was eating breakfast, and he came into the kitchen, and he said, you wouldn't happen to have a hammer, would you? Now, let me just say, the day before, I had a hammer out, and I was pounding nails into the wall to hang pictures. So he knew I had a hammer. So what was he really asking? Did I have a hammer? No. He was asking, may I borrow the hammer you have? Another question, okay? This is another example. When I got married and we had kids, um, one of the things you have to do is change diapers. So here's a question that I would frequently be asked. Would you like to change Amy or Hannah's diaper? That is not a question. <laughs> or here's another one. Would you like a Coke or pop, as Minnesotans say? And when I first arrived, I'd say, sure, that'd be great. And I'd get these strange looks. And it wasn't until I read the book, How to Talk Minnesotan, that I realized in Minnesota, you have to refuse twice. You never accept the offer of food or a drink until you've been asked three times. Now, there's one more Minnesota trait that took some getting used to, and that is that Minnesotans believe that good things happen. But when they do, they will always be paired with something bad. Minnesotans never get overly excited. They actually never get really overly depressed. They just understand that these things come in pairs. So when something good happens, they begin to get nervous because something bad is likely to happen to balance it all out. That's a universal thing, by the way. That it, 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 they just believe if something good happens, it's not long before the other shoe drops. Now, I should be fair in saying that that is probably a universal human trait because it's easy for us to become preoccupied with worry and to be concerned about the future. And James is reminding us that we need to trust God with the future. We're not in charge of it. So we shouldn't fear or dread the future, have some sort of morbid preoccupation with potential disaster, or, or the, because our uncertainty about the future should not lead us to fear. It should lead us to trust. So both worry and overconfidence really come from the same source. It's because we don't trust God with the future. Both fail to acknowledge God's control over life, so when we worry excessively, we're saying that we don't believe that God can be trusted to take care of us in the future. But I think there's great freedom in knowing that we can make plans, we can put those plans in God's hands, and we can trust him. So both avoid overconfidence as well as excessive worry. So how do we avoid overconfidence and excessive worry? Well, one way is to live in the present. Because both worry and overconfidence mean that our perspective is always in the future. So when our plans fail to include God, our focus shifts to the future and we fail to live in the present, the place that God has us right now. We fail to appreciate the moments that we're in, when we're in them, because we're so concerned about tomorrow or next month or next year. And the truth is, and James says this, we don't know what today or even tomorrow will bring. So learn to live each day as a gift from God, understanding that God is the one who controls the future. Now, our daughters are largely grown up. Our, our oldest daughter, Amy, will never live at home again, at least we think. And uh, our uh, youngest daughter is a junior in college, so probably one, maybe two more summers before she's gone. And when we were young parents, parents uh, of friends of ours who had children a little bit older than ours kept saying things like, you know, enjoy these years, they go by so fast. And yet it's really hard, when, especially when they're really little, 
Um, not to think, you know, this is the days of diapers and car seats and childproof locks and chaotic dinner times. It's, not, it's really hard not to imagine a future when they're a little bit more mature. But at times you get so caught up in thinking about the future that you miss the joys in the moment. And each age of our daughter's lives had their challenges and also their charms. And just this week, I came across something that I had largely forgotten about. I wrote it down after a spring break trip that we took to San Diego when the girls were six and three. We'd gone to visit Kathy's parents who were spending the winter there. And I wrote down some of the things that we did, including going to SeaWorld, the Wild Animal Park, to Legoland. We walked the beach in Del Mar. We went to the Scripps Aquarium. We took walks in the neighborhood where Kathy's parents were staying. And on two different mornings, I took first one and then the other daughter to breakfast at a local restaurant. Now, at SeaWorld, we went to the show, all the shows, actually, and the big show is with Shamu the killer whale, and our girls insisted on sitting in the soak zone. And um, just because they were six and three, we had to sit with them, and the whole show went by, and I thought, hey, we're going to get by without getting wet, until the trainer at the end of the show told Shamu to wave goodbye to everyone in the show. And within seconds, we were all completely soaked with this wave of water that came out of the tank. And the girls loved it. They were just thrilled. They were laughing and smiling as we walked to the car to change, uh, to, to, uh, change their clothes. Our planning did include a change of clothes for them. Not for us, but it did. And I had completely forgotten about that day. One of those great days in the lives of our family, a moment to cherish. Sometimes we live so much in the future that we can't appreciate the moments when they happen. So we need to understand that we can trust God and we can enjoy the moments that come in the moment and let him control the future and turn our attention to the present. Now, the last lesson that I wanna mention from James is that when our plans come together, we need to thank God. So when our plans succeed, thank God. It is easy for us to chalk up a success to our own planning and wisdom, and we need to plan. Those things are important. But we must ultimately remember that God is in charge and when those things do work out, that he is the one who has allowed those. Many years ago when I was reading old books, I came across a curious set of initials in these books and the first few times I ignored them. But eventually my curiosity was piqued and so I looked it up in the dictionary in days before the internet and um, I found out that D period V period stands for the Latin phrase Deo Valente. Deo means God, Valente means will or volition. Um, and uh, DV stands for God willing. And so it was used whenever a writer, um, someone who was informed by Christian faith, would write out, I plan to do this or that. At the end of that, they would put D period, V period. In fact, I have an uncle I used to get letters from, and he would say, we plan to come visit you or visit someone D period, V period at the end of that. And I was really captured by that. And so I remember making a little slip of paper and taping it to my day planner at the time, um, and uh, used it as a way of reminding myself as I went about my daily activities at work and at home of reminding me that God was in control. So the question is, do you have plans? And, the, and I hope you do. It's good to have plans. Planning for the future is wise. And if you don't have a plan for something you're facing, I would encourage you to make a plan. And then once you have that plan, don't stop there. Take time to pray. Tell God, if this is your will, here is my plan. And ask him to give you success. It is not wrong to pray that the plan will work out, but submit to his will, even if it means a change in plans. 
Now, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what plans you may be developing or you have developed. But if you'd like someone to pray with you about that, we have a place called the Prayer Point in the back to my right here in this uh, worship center. And it's a place where you can be met by someone who briefly after the service would be glad to pray with you. And if you need a plan and want to ask for wisdom, ask someone to pray with you about that. Or if you have a, a plan that you've made that you're anxious about, um, ask them to pray with you for God's will in that plan. Whatever it is, bring it to God in prayer. We need to ask ourselves regularly, what do we trust in? Is, is our trust in our own ability or is our trust in God? Is it in our plans or in God's control of the future affairs of our lives? God is not against us making plans. He's not against us taking action to carry out those plans. Those are all things we ought to do. But as James points out, we need to always plan and carry out those plans, acknowledging that God, not us, is in charge of the future. Let's pray. Father, we're people who plan, and that is good. You want us to be intentional, to make wise plans for the future in all areas of life. Yet, Father, we confess that we too often um, fail to make plans that include you. We forget that it's you, not us, who's in charge of the future. So we confess our arrogance and acknowledge that you're the giver of life and the guarantor of our future. Help us always to acknowledge you, to say in the midst of our planning, if you are willing. Thank you, Father, that we can trust you, that you promise to work good in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.